The police to reconsider whether a foreign domestic helper is a victim of trafficking and forced labour. And the UN Human Rights Commission says it's uncovered evidence of atrocities against civilians in Ukraine. You're listening to the news on RTHK. I'm Dr. Patrick Yip. COVID-19 vaccination is the most effective way to prevent severe illness and death. More than 100 million children worldwide have received vaccination. We are working at full strength to help children aged 3 to 11 to get vaccinated. The two COVID-19 vaccines used in Hong Kong are safe and effective. No severe reaction has occurred after vaccination, even among those with asthma, food or drug allergies. Protect your children. Act now to arrange vaccination. I am a primary student. I want to get vaccinated. Good morning and welcome to The Week on 3. I'm your host, Christy Lai. Hope you're having a splendid day so far. If it's your first time joining me here, I'll be bringing you some of my top picks from the past week here on Radio 3. I have a great lineup of interviews for you today. And without further ado, let's jump right into it. With the social distancing measures finally easing up, it's time to dine out and chow down to something good. I have missed having meals with my friends. And finally, it's time to ignite the foodie in me. Speaking about food, for our first interview, we'll be listening to Jenna Cord, a musician who has been writing music since the age of 13, but is also an avid foodie. During her studies in the UK, Jenna traveled around Europe to find the best tiramisu. To share more about her travels, Jenna spoke to Sadi Usmani on the 123 show and how she once had four tiramisu in just one day. Uh, when I was in the UK, because um, studying there is really uh, quite boring <laughs> because you uh, the the curriculum is quite short. Like you only have nine hours of lectures per week, so I have nothing to do in other time. So I mostly spend my time on making music or practicing, and then I love traveling with my friends because UK is a brand new place for me at that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because so, you're a local Hong Kong girl, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the first time that I've been into a city outside Hong Kong for that long, like mm-hmm. for three years. And it was it was amazing. Like It was the best time of my life, I think. Oh, yeah. good. And you managed to travel around Europe? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to Italy, I went to France, I went to Greece, uh, Turkey, like... Because the flight is really cheap there if you go from the UK, but then if you come back to Hong Kong, the flight is really expensive yeah. to travel around yeah. Europe. So I spend most of my long holidays uh, and by traveling in Europe. Yeah. Good. And now food-wise, um, you know, going to the UK, uh, was there anything in the UK that you found interesting in terms of food? <laughs> Actually, I was surprised by the portion of the food uh-huh. when I was first arrived in the UK uh-huh. because I, I had uh, fish and chips with my friends uh, when we traveled around the UK and then it was really, really large portion for the fish and chips uh-huh. and I got ill the, the next day. <laughs> It's it too was much. too much for okay. me. But yeah, but I don't want to waste the food and I try my best to finish it, uh-huh. finish the whole portion. And then after that three years, I gained weight a lot. 
Yeah. I was so choppy at that time. <laughs> so fish and chips, was that something that you liked in terms of the food? Was there anything else that you enjoyed eating in the UK itself? Uh, not really local UK food, but mm-hmm. maybe uh, pasta, tiramisu, uh-huh. or like uh, even the Asian food was great. Like yeah. the pad thai was really amazing in Newcastle and I couldn't have it back after I came back to Hong Kong. Oh, good. So, good. so good variety yeah. of stuff. Now, tell yeah. me about your soundbite. What have you chosen to talk about where you have particular memories? And I think it's, it's probably the tiramisu, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, the tiramisu, it was so good. Yeah, I actually, I went to Italy twice. Mm-hmm. And it's because I want to try the tiramisu there. And yeah, it's food that makes me want to visit a place. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, that's a good way of doing it. Actually, I I can identify yeah. with that. That you go to a place which has good food, and you want to try the <laughs> food out, right? So, so yeah. when when was tiramisu in your life? So, what kind of memories do you attach to tiramisu apart from traipsing around Italy to all the restaurants to try it? Is that something that you've always liked in terms of sweets? Because sometimes, you know, Chinese, yeah. um, you know, the Chinese palate doesn't like too sweet, too many sweet things. You know, excessive yeah. sweet. So, what made you go for tiramisu? So, actually, I'm a dessert lover ever since I was in Hong Kong as well. Mm-hmm. So, whenever I was stressed at school during my uh, secondary school age, and I would go to eat pudding or tiramisu. Uh-huh. These are the two desserts I always have. And then, so uh, after I studied in the UK, I finally got the chance to really visit the uh, the origin of tiramisu, which is Italy. And mm. I was crazy about that during that trip. And I keep eating every tiramisu I saw in the trip. <laughs> I, let me just ask you, did you put on weight while you were traipsing around Italy? <laughs> I think so. I think so. You know, when I took the graduation picture, I was so fat. <laughs> So chubby at the time. And then I didn't even realize that after my brother took a picture of me and I saw my uh, very big arms, then I just realized, whoa, I gained weight a lot. <laughs> so, well, I yeah. mean, roughly how many restaurants are we talking about where you went and tried tiramisu in Italy? How many places did you go to? Uh, well, I went to a lot of places. <laughs> I went there twice, One in once in uh, winter. Which is uh, I went to Pisa, uh, Santa Umbria, Naples, and Rome, mm-hmm. and then another trip in summer I went to Verona, Venice, Florence, and Perugia again. Wow! Yeah. Wow! You've really seen a lot of Italy. And how many would you say, off the top of your head, how many tiramisu's did you taste? <laughs> I, you know, I take pictures of every tiramisu I ate during the trip and I was counting the photos last night. Yeah. I I think I had 20 something <laughs> and, for that tiramisu. Okay. And, and how long was that trip for? What's the second trip that you uh, had? Um, I think mostly I had it on the second trip because on the first trip I was, I had food poisoning because <laughs> of having crayfish. Okay. I didn't know it's poisoning on the head. And I suck it. So so I got food poisoning and my friend banned me from having dairy products. So the next uh, uh, Italy trip, I had like four tiramisu a day. Four tiramisu a day. 
And yeah. It, are we talking about a little, just little portion, or did you just enjoy it and think, well, I'm just going to eat this? Any size, like <laughs> uh, cheap ones or expensive ones, I had it like I love every it. <laughs> size. Yeah, four tiramisu's a day. So then, yes. your your real memories, um, your mm. soundbite is about the tiramisu in Italy, right? Yes, and, yes, yes. And did you find your favorite one? Yeah, I found my favorite one in Perugia. It's mm-hmm. a pastry shop called Sandri. Mm-hmm. But then my friend told me last year that it was closed since oh. the first lockdown in March 2020. Oh, I was very sad about that. I know. Yeah. My goodness, the you finally found it. So, so tell me, you know. For people who have not had tiramisu, um, you know, there's quite a few. I'm not actually a very, I'm not keen on tiramisu, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, for people who have not tried it, describe tiramisu to me and then tell me what it is that you look for in a good tiramisu. So I think uh, for me, a good tiramisu, it should consist of three different flavors. So uh, the cheese flavor, and then the, some alcohol like rum, mm-hmm. and then an espresso. So these are the three so key the nice coffee. Uh, taste. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three tastes that I are concerned. And then also um, how they make with the lady fingers is another point as well. So uh, for me, uh, the tiramisu, the best tiramisu I had in Perugia, um, they have the the trees, uh, the the taste is very very strong, and then I can even taste the uh, uh, tiny bits of the cheese from the cake. It's mm. not like very very creamy, but it's not like very very solid. It's just on the point, mm-hmm. so good. Mm-hmm. And I can taste rum and espresso from it as well. So I think it has a very good balance on these three elements. And that was Jenna Cord on the One Two Three Show. If you would like to hear more about Jenna, check out her Instagram page at Jenna Cord Music. Recently, a primetime television drama has been embroiled in a lot of controversy as an ethnic Chinese actress darkened her skin to portray a Filipino domestic helper. Many were outraged by the portrayal and how it blatantly used brown face makeup instead of having a Filipino actress to play the role. Because of the matter, some ethnic minorities have spoken up and expressed their concern on how the media often fails to portray them with respect, and instead of being a part of Hong Kong, they are disregarded and referred to as the others. Discussing the matter on Friday's Back Chat is Christine Vricera, a Filipino writer, researcher, and filmmaker, and also Ricky Chu, chairman of the Equal Opportunities Commission. By viewing the, after viewing the episode, I think instead of the um, controversial darkened skin color makeup issue, I found that there are at least two other scenes in which the dialogue of other characters actually um, uh, portrayed um, a negative label against the uh, foreign domestic workers by using, uh, first of all, collectively address the domestic helpers instead of addressing only only one. And then it talks about uh, some uh, bad behavior or some weird behavior that are practiced by the community, uh, by the group as well, uh, as a whole. Okay. So I think it would, it would be 
bordering on discriminatory or even uh, verification against the particular community that it addressed it to. And also, I think such uh, dialogue are not really necessary in in delivering the uh, the theme or the message of the drama. So I think it, it caused it caused concern and discomfort. Okay, so you 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 were not impressed with the uh, with it, and you say you're saying so it was definitely not a sympathetic presentation. It was a would you say it was you know blatant stereotyping? Um, um, I think if we talk about the uh, the makeup alone. Uh, it would be difficult, controversial, or even sufficient to judge if the act itself, standing alone, is discriminatory or not. Because very often when we judge a case uh, of discrimination, we have to consider circumstances as a whole. Mm-hmm. In, in, this, uh, in this scenario, probably we need to consider the theme, uh, the messages that it was trying to send, the portrayal of the roles. Of course, makeup is important, but other things like costumes or design that acts, dialogues, etc., are equally important. Right. Okay. Um, we're joined uh, now in our Admiralty studio by Christine Becerra, who is a, a writer, researcher, and filmmaker uh, in Hong Kong. Christine, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having there me. There we go. Fantastic. Great. Good morning. Good morning. You're on with uh, Ricky Chu, who's the chairman of the Equal Opportunities Commission. Uh, Christine, have you actually seen the show? They, they pulled it off uh, the website before a lot of people had a chance to see it. Did you get a chance to have a look? I've seen snippets, yeah, on on social media. So there were reposts of snippets of different parts of the show, and mm-hmm. I saw the the one where um, the employers were questioning her, um, you know, if she was using voodoo. All right, and and what was your take on it? Was this, uh, you know, kind of showing how domestic helpers can sometimes be put upon unfairly, or was it uh, a less flattering portrayal? It was so. It's a very complicated um, and layered issue, um, and there are many aspects that can be unpacked. Um, mm-hmm. So there's the race issue, right? The the brown facing in particular that was problematic, and then the casting of, you know, Francesca as someone who I guess portrayed a Filipina domestic worker, and um, in terms of I guess you know the gendered aspect as well. So. I guess part of, just for context, um, what I do for research right now is work with migrant domestic workers at um, the Chinese University of Hong Kong's uh, social work department. And we focus on mental health and there's a lot of um, issues that come up, um, you know, in terms of gendered labor migration. And I feel like the show's emphasis on, um, you know, you know, it was, it was, they portrayed her, the, the character, the migrant domestic worker, as you know, someone who is who uses voodoo to steal husbands, and I feel like the gendered issue is also something that hasn't been. Um, People haven't really been talking about it a lot, so right. that's, I feel like another thing to unpack. But I mean, in the show, and I mean, I guess Ricky Chu's seen the whole episode, but I mean, are they portraying her as? somebody who's actually doing this or are they portraying it as she is being unfairly accused because people are kind of lunatics and believe in voodoo and <laughs> think she might be doing it i mean which, which where does it fall <laughs> yeah i think it's um so the show kind of sets it up right so that she is uh, the audience is led to believe that she uses voodoo when in fact um it all leads up to this plot twist right okay where she she doesn't and yeah <laughs> okay, so it is set in reality. It's not like a fantasy show. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and w- so you say you're, you're working with uh, domestic helpers. 
what is their take on it? I've I've spoken to a couple, and uh, I was surprised that they were not that upset about the TV show. Mm. You know, they they immediately had a litany of other complaints where they were facing racism in their lives, and the TV show wasn't that high on their priority list. What what is what are you hearing? Um, well, yes, I, I have heard those comments. So some of them um, would argue that oh, you know, we are. Uh, supposed to em- embrace our brownness, um, and I think in Francesca's portrayal um, and her, you know, the act of brown face, th- they saw that as well. Someone is taking, uh, you know, using use I, I like using their platform, I guess, to embrace their brownness. But I think right. what's missing in that conversation is the I is the is the idea that brown facing is essentially an exercise in privilege right well mm. while the actress is you know after the end of the show is able to remove the skin color right. the makeup mm-hmm. you know filipinos south asian southeast asians here in hong kong with brown skin aren't allowed to remove their brown skin and with brownness comes you know a whole package of identities tied to our skin color um, there's citizenship status class race of course and with these come stereotypes come prejudice that we can't simply just remove um, so it's that's something I think that's at the core of a lot of the um, the uproar against the show one of the issues that uh, came to my attention quite recently actually is um, from Izzy Jose who is a Filipina uh, part of the performing performing arts industry in Hong Kong and she uh, studied at HKAPA Academy of Performing Arts and she mentioned that one of her one of the alumni uh, told her that the casting the casting director for the show actually approached APA about you know um, possible um, actors to p- take this role for the domestic worker but uh, what her what her friend colleague said that is that you know when it comes to arts education in Hong Kong um, a lot of the courses are Chinese media of, ins- of instruction CMI so that already right. is one of the structural issues it's it's not a matter of I feel like it's less um, you know an argument is that that has been constantly coming up is sure. oh there are a lot of Filipino talent fil- talented Filipino actors here in Hong Kong why didn't they cast uh, a Filipino actor sure. um, but one of the structural issues is this gap in arts equity gap in arts education right what, what about because, language does does she have to play does she speak in Cantonese on the show or does she speak in English I think or, because of the plot um, I think she eventually uh, turns into a local if i remember correctly like like <laughs> okay I, I i this is what i'm hearing from my my peers who have watched the show before it got taken down and that was christine for sarah and ricky chu on friday's back chat we spoke about going out and dining in but if you're more into books or enjoy some quiet time i might have just a thing for you yesterday on morning brew Phil talked with author Neville Cerrone, who has just launched his latest Max Devlin adventure. It's called The Jakarta Incident. Actually, it's the prequel to The Dharma Expedient and The Devil's Chakra, and has been long awaited by fans of Major Max Devlin. 
we'll have to wait and see. But in, <laughs> in the past, in the past, people have said, what happened next? It, to a certain extent, of course, that has been answered because as a prequel, people will know uh, to a certain extent what happens later on. Mm. Are you a history buff by nature, Neville? I love prequels. I love concept stories. Yeah. Yes, I, I've always loved history. Absolutely. Well, why don't you give us why don't you give a give us potted Max Devlin if you can? Because obviously, not everybody's read your work. Yeah, I think the the, the whole point is that he starts out effectively as a serving officer in the Royal Gurkha Rifles, right? Okay. And that's where we meet him in the Chakarata incident. Okay, he's uh, he's a very high flying officer. He's got a lot of talents, uh, and he's very well regarded. So at the beginning of the book, people are anticipating that he's go on, going on to command and, and go on from there. Mm -hmm. and, and that then becomes a, a big issue in the, in the story because he's going to find that his ethics and personal principles are, are challenged in the sense that if they run against his career, mm -hmm. then he may where else. Uh, he may have to sacrifice one or the other. Right. Okay. But um, when people meet him or met him the first time in the um, in the Dharma expedient, uh, in fact, he had gone through the gamut. He'd gone, left the army. He'd gone on. Right. He'd set up set up a, a travel business, an adventure business in Nepal, which was his area of expertise. Yep. Uh, that that had been taken by the government because uh, they'd uh, they'd gone they'd got rid of the king they got themselves a new government uh, and they'd privatized everything so in the dharma expedient we meet him when he's down on his luck right good, uh, and, good place and, to start and it was begging for a prequel obviously even then i guess i think it was i think it was of course the curious thing is that i wrote it really as a one-off yeah and then then people said so what happened next <laughs> Well, that's, so I went back that, and picked it up. That's an amazing compliment, really. I mean, it truly is that they want more. I mean, an author, it couldn't make an author happier, I guess. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, people say, the first thing, it shows that they've been completely embedded in the story. Yeah. And, and the fact that they want more, you can't, you can't ask for anything better. Do we describe this as an adventure story? Hor horrible to put labels on things, Neville, but what would they be? Yeah, I loathe pigeonholing things, oh, yeah, exactly. but uh, it, it's, I would call it a political thriller. Okay, well, look, I mean, the background to this is extremely intricate, and I think it's no secret that a lot of your skill set is his, right? Uh, well, you draw on your experience, and I have the good fortune to have a rich experience. Yeah, yeah, and you lived for quite a long time in that part of the world. Which I only know of one guy who actually won a Pulitzer Prize by writing about North Korea and never set foot in the place. But let, tell me what you think about building it up, living, living in the country, sucking in the whole lifestyle. Well, obviously it depends where you're going, but uh, when you're talking about living in the Himalayas, yes. you're, you're living in, in a sense, a different world. Okay. Uh, it's quite difficult for people who come in for the first time. They, they're quite often lost. But I think... The best way I can describe it is once you get up into the high Himalayas amongst the, the peaks, you suddenly realize how completely insignificant you are. Yeah. And yet there's, there's a conflict because you also feel uplifted. And, and I find that, that a really curious contrast. On the one hand, 
you're, you're feeling humbled, but on the other, you're inspired. There are two ways of getting experience of a certain place in the world. One is just letting it seep in and travel and visit. The other one is through the military. Now, I don't know, were you in the military there? No, I wasn't, no. Uh, I was, all my service was in Malaya. Well, down the road, shall we say, but at least you, yes. were, you, were, you were Asia friendly. And I think, again, that probably really helps and shows in your work. Uh, I think undoubtedly. The one thing is that after I left the army and went back to read law in England, yeah. my, my main concern was how the hell do I go back east again? Yeah, and how did you cope with that? What did you do? Um, <laughs> I went back east I, again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I made a mistake. I, I joined the Foreign Office. Yeah. And uh, but they kept me in London, so I thought well, I'm not I'm not going to stay here. Forget mm. this. And mm. uh, so I got out. Tell me about the first book. Was this something that had been burning for a long time, or was it something that you just thought it came to you? Because everybody has a different story. <laughs> yeah. What's yours? Mine is a bit of a bit of a parson's egg, really, because the very first chapter I think I wrote when I was still in the army. Okay. After after a particularly bibulous night out. And I wanted to capture some of the atmosphere, uh, and I and I wrote it, and I then stuck it away, uh -huh. and then and then the idea for the book came along, and that's what really drove me because once once I had that idea and I knew roughly where it was going, uh -huh. all I had to do was was to start, and once I started, the story pulled me along. Two, two ways of capture, capturing a moment and a feel. The obvious one is to take photographs, but you obviously felt happier doing it through words. That's interesting. Yeah, I think, I, the more I think about this, Phil, uh, I, have a, I have a graphic approach to, to, to life. I, I think in pictures. Yeah. When, I, when I'm writing, I, I write what I see and hear. And that was author Neville Cerrone on Friday's Morning Brew. And finally, to end today's week on three, I'll be leaving you with Steve James. On Thursday, Steve was trying to come up with a new jingle for a segment to be named Name Job of the Day, and also discovered how new chopsticks from Japan are improving the taste for your food. Thanks for tuning in with me, Christy Lai. Thanks for tuning in with me, Christy Lai, and I'll catch you next week here on The Week on Three. I wanted to say Lantau's own Dave Calcoon and Scarecrow. Um, I've always associated him with uh, with Lantau, uh, but have I got that wrong? Was he a llama boy? Somebody sent me right. Thank you very much. Oh, a little while ago, I need a new jingle. I've, I've realised what I need a new jingle for. I'll uh, I'll speak to my people. It's to do with. Um, uh, name dropping. Um, somebody will, you, you, the team joining in on chat and, and this and that will sort of hear a piece of music and then say, oh yeah, I um, saw them, uh, saw them live. Someone, you know. So it was Ella and Basie a little while ago and it's Val listening in the United Kingdomium says, bring, brings back happy memories of seeing Ella and Basie when I was about 10. Saw them in Leicester. 
in England. Name drop, top name drop of the day. There you go. Oh, imagine seeing Ella and Basie live. Oh, mate. Hey, Val, remind me to treat you with much more respect uh, uh, next time you're in town, yeah? Because clearly... <laughs> Japanese researchers have developed computerised chopsticks. <laughs> <clears throat> it's, why, it's why I got into broadcasting. Top name drop of the day. Japanese researchers have developed computerised chopsticks that enhance salty tastes. That's right. Why? The idea is to help those who need to reduce sodium in their diets. Fascinating, Batman. The chopsticks enhance tastes using electrical stimulation. Ooh. Let me try that again. The chopsticks enhance tastes using electrical stimulation. Uh, and a mini-computer, of course, worn on a wristband. I mean, it's not an attractive set of chopsticks so far, is it? It sends electric through you and you've got to wear a wristband. It uses a weak electrical current to transmit sodium ions from food through the chopsticks to the mouth, where they create a sense of saltiness. This is according to the inventor... Oh, hang on. Homi Mayashita of Meiji University... He says the salty taste is enhanced 1.5 times. Excess sodium intake is related to high blood pressure, strokes and other ailments. And by the way, Mayashita and his lab have also explored other ways that technology can uh, stimulate human sensory experience. You might want to stand back a little bit for this one. He and his lab have also explored other ways that technology can stimulate human sensory experiences. Ready? They have also come up with a lickable TV screen that can... Why would I make that up? Don't you look at your radio like that. Um, 